This is episode 123 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lauren Herman. Lauren is a speech-language pathologist with experience in acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, and skilled nursing facilities while filling full-time, part-time, per diem, and travel contract roles. She has worked across seven hospitals around the country, ranging from small community hospitals to large academic trauma centers, and is currently starting her own private practice in Pennsylvania. Lauren is only one of two speech-language pathology members of the Radiological Society of North America and is passionate about interdisciplinary collaboration, advocacy, and ethics. She is currently conducting survey research with hopes to present at state and national conferences for speech-language pathologists, radiologists, and radiology technicians. In the meantime, Lauren can be found completing self-surveys on wine preference and is happy to discuss results with anyone who is interested. And that's why Lauren and I are friends. But I will say Lauren's uh, latest survey that she is now working on, a piece of research that she is conducting, just got IRB approval and she is looking for help from all of you. So if you would be interested in filling out this survey about practices with collaboration between SLPs and radiologists, you can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash S-L-P-R-A-D survey. So SLP rad survey. So it's bit.ly bit.ly forward slash SLP rad survey. And also encourage your radiology counterpart to take that as well. So you'll hear, hear all about the survey in this episode, but I just wanted to let you know that is the link to go and take the survey. So hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Lauren. Hi. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes. All right. So tell the people who you are. All right. Uh, My name is Lauren Herman, and I graduated from James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Harrisonburg, Virginia, with both of my bachelor's and master's degrees. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to work all over the country, both as a travel therapist um, in various positions that were available as my husband and I frequently moved around. Several months ago, we just moved from California to Pennsylvania, but unfortunately, there have just been no per diem hospital opportunities for me, which is what I've been looking for. So I just decided to start my own practice. I said, to heck with it. So in my free time, I've been able to work on multiple projects around what I'm passionate about in our field, which includes advocacy work and interprofessional relationships, which is why I'm here. I love it. All right. So what are we, what are we going to talk about? I think you kind of gave a little snippet of what we're going to talk about. But. Yes. So we're going to talk about interdisciplinary relationships, but mainly focusing on uh, SLP's relationships, our relationships with radiologists. And before I get started, I would just like to note for you and anyone who's listening that I have put together several resources around interdisciplinary relationships for your show notes. And 
it includes a list of interprofessional education opportunities, including conferences and workshops that are going on throughout 2020, and a list of your Swallow Your Pride podcast episodes, actually, that focus on or tap into interdisciplinary and intradisciplinary relationships, as well as information on modified barium swallow studies, which helps to guide our conversation and practice with radiologists. So I wanted to note that. And one other thing, too, you'll see in the show notes, I just recently learned about ASH's strategic objective to advance interprofessional education and collaborative practice. So they've done this before, but this is the first time I had heard about it, and I thought it was really neat. Uh, ASH is currently offering a stipend program to encourage ASHA members to, pra- or to participate in the 2020 IPEC Interprofessional Faculty Development Institute. And they have two of them they're offering. There's one in the spring, one in the fall. And IPEC is the Interprofessional Education Collaborative. And basically, they just work to encourage the efforts to prepare future health professionals so that they can enter the workforce ready for interprofessional collaborative practice. So it looks like IPEC's Spring Institute uh, is designed for interprofessional teams seeking to build a framework for interprofessional education. And then IPEC's Fall Institute is designed for interprofessional teams that already have a framework in place, but they're just seeking to advance their existing program for collaborative work. So anyone who's interested might want to check that out, you know, because while I'm here to speak specifically on working towards improving relationships and collaboration with radiologists, I do know that my suggestions and methods may not work for everyone. Each hospital and department has its own culture, its own history. So maybe there's a piece of what I have to offer that can be taken away and combined with other really excellent recommendations from the other speakers that you've had on your show. So for anyone who just really wants to dive into the topic of interdisciplinary relationships, I just recommend getting a lot of hot chocolate, coffee, wine, and listen to all of these episodes, as well as this one. Yeah, and just check out the show. Thank you, Lauren. I had no idea about that ASHA initiative, so thank you so much for sharing that. I know. It's new to me, too, and I, I wish that I worked somewhere where I could get a team together and, and go to one of these institutes or go and come back with really good knowledge. So if anyone does, please let me know how it is. I'm curious. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Yes. So I'm going to start with an interesting statistic that I read in an article. This was published in 2012, but I do think it's eye-opening to at least see some historical trends. So there was a review of reports from the Joint Commission that showed that lack of communication and collaboration may be responsible for as much as 70% of the adverse events reported. The Joint Commission also cites that communication failures are the leading cause for things like medication errors, delays in treatment, and wrong site surgeries. And I mention this because it highlights the importance of interdisciplinary communication and collaboration, and it taps into a specific area of concern that I'm seeing speech therapists who work with radiologists get into, which is delay in treatment. So if the speech pathologist and radiologist don't communicate goals or their procedures for an MBS might be very different from each other and how they want to carry it out, you know, this could lead to incomplete studies, which then could lead to a delay in care. So kind of seeing this information, it led me to look into interdisciplinary research with rehab and other professionals. And I found some interesting articles on interprofessional rounding in the ICU and kind of how to really promote that. And what was just kind of funny to me 
is that, you know, they, they listed everyone who would be involved in ICU rounded. They listed physicians, advanced practice providers, bedside nurses, case managers, RTPTOT. They listed everyone but the speech therapist. So I thought that was kind of funny, but also I'm used to seeing speech therapists kind of left out in a lot of areas. So now I'm trying to find research around interprofessional collaboration that actually includes our profession. And it's not as abundant as the literature is around many other professions. Found some articles. There's one that's listed on one of your resources in the MedSLP Collective, actually, regarding the important partnership between registered dietitians and speech therapists. And I found another one for nurses in skilled nursing facility um, and speech therapists and their work around dysphagia. And then, of course, there's Bonnie Martin-Harris. She's done a lot of excellent work with radiologists and speech therapists, which I will tap into a little bit later on. So focusing on our relationship with radiologists. I think one reason why it's so difficult for us, not just with radiologists, but with physicians in general, is because there's a comfort level that's needed to speak up and interact with physicians that many of us might lack, especially when we're just coming out of grad school and we feel like we don't know enough or we can't contribute in a way that a physician would appreciate. So I think if we could just have better interprofessional education while we're in school, you know, this factor might shrink a little bit. And that's why I Love, love, love what Pam Holland is doing at Marshall University with her students and the advocacy project around interdisciplinary collaboration. And I think you had her and her students on for two episodes, 47 and 48. I loved that. I thought that was such a cool thing. And I'm hoping that more students are able to do something similar where they can reach out to other professionals they may work with on a daily basis to interview them. And I know for me, I couldn't become comfortable with speaking up or offering education to physicians until I better understood what their roles were and when I was comfortable enough with my own knowledge, which leads me to my first point. I think that one thing we need for strong relationships with radiologists or any profession is respect. So we need to earn their respect, but how do we do that? Well, most importantly, we need to know our stuff. Be the expert on the topic that you want to discuss. And I'm so grateful for the MedSLP Collective and this podcast for that very reason. Other things you can do is collaborate with your department to discuss challenging cases, use reliable resources. You can take extra CEU courses. I can't recommend the MBS, IMP, and MDTP courses enough. I love those courses. And I think, Teresa, you usually recommend AmpCare for excellent information on cranial nerves, which is helpful. I also recommend that people practice educating others that you're comfortable with on topics that you might want to discuss with your radiologists. And I know that hot topics of discussion right now between speech therapists and radiologists include things like standardized protocols, getting AP view and esophageal sweeps, ending the study as soon as a patient aspirates, agreement on frame rate, and radiation exposure concern. And in the show notes, I've actually listed some research articles that can help SLPs to prompt discussions with their radiologists on most of these topics. Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris and Dr. Bonilla, they've provided great resources through their research around video fluoroscopic swallow studies, standardized protocols, and radiation exposure. Recently, actually, in I think it was March, March of 2019, there's an article by Dr. Bonilla... Dr. Bonilla and Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, 
titled Relationships Between Radiation Exposure Dose, Time, and Projection in Videofluoroscopic Swallowing Studies, uh, which can be found in the Dysphagia Journal as well as the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology. And this article discusses the five-minute rule. I've been hearing a lot about that lately. And it, it discusses the five-minute rule and the merit of that by comparing it to something known as the dose area product, which is the absorbed dose of radiation multiplied by the area irradiated. In a nutshell, uh, this study questioned the clinical practice of using time, namely the five-minute rule, as a threshold for radiation exposure during an MBS. This is just an example of a study that we can bring up with our radiologists to initiate a discussion around something like radiation exposure and time limits. So simply knowing everything about dysphagia and MBSs won't be enough. The other part of this is knowing all of the relevant clinical details about the patient that you and your radiologist will be seeing together. And if possible, I would even encourage SLPs to consult with the radiologist before during and after the MBS to discuss the patient's clinical information, uh, the findings during the MBS, recommendations. Just try coming prepared with both your clinical expertise and the patient knowledge that will, it'll just help tremendously with this effort. But I do know, you know, taking this time with a radiologist can be difficult. For some, it might feel impossible in a lot of facilities. And I, I actually feel lucky enough because I received excellent training at a large academic trauma hospital, and the importance of presenting the patient to the radiologist was drilled into my head. We had to be prepared before the radiologist entered the room, which meant knowing the patient's medical history, why they were admitted, relevant hospital course like intubation and extubation, for example, and why we were even doing the study. And you know, some of the attendings at this hospital were kind of intimidating, especially for me as I was just starting out, they were really intimidating. And there was even one radiologist, uh, she would often be rushing. And if you weren't ready when she entered the room, she would just turn around and leave to do another study and made you wait. So the fear of looking ill-prepared or like I didn't know my patient was stress-inducing at first, but I got to the point where it was second nature for me to just come in with my arsenal of knowledge, which ultimately led to earning her respect and the respect of other radiologists and red techs. So on that note, actually, I'd like to even mention my husband's own observations. So as luck would have it, the man I married decided to become a radiologist. And I swear I didn't influence him at all to go this route while in med school, but it's pretty handy. And when he was in training, he did a lot of MBSs. He doesn't anymore. He would occasionally tell me about one or two SLPs that he didn't really enjoy working with, I guess is what I would say, because he felt like they didn't know either what they were doing or they weren't prepared, or sometimes he wasn't even sure if they knew who the patient was. And it was pretty discouraging for him. Radiologists are really busy with multiple images or procedures, and really they can be dealing with well over 100 images in a day. So they're not going to take the time to read up on my patient or look over my note, figure out why I'm recommending an MBS. That's, that's on me to communicate with the radiologist. And it's incredibly helpful if we take the initiative to do all of that work for them and just include them. So another component to improving our relationships with radiologists is getting to know them on a personal level. 
we hear a lot about humanizing healthcare, and many of us are really good at seeing our patients as human and looking at the whole picture. And it's a part of our training to not just view a patient as a set of lab values and images and clinical history. And if you think about it, I mean, we actually make it a point to really get to know our patients, find out their interests and hobbies, see what motivates them. But I'm not completely convinced that most healthcare providers are good at doing this with each other. When it comes to this topic on building better interdisciplinary relationships with radiologists, we need to remember that they're humans too. They might have you know, similar hobbies or interests or uh, children they love talking about. So come in with your knowledge and a welcoming personality that shows you're not only an educated medical professional who's prepared, but you're also personable and you want to learn both from and about the radiologists. There is actually an article released by the American College of Radiology, ACR, and it discussed the relationship between SLPs and radiologists. The article is titled Collaboration Comes Standard. It's about the incredible work of Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, Dr. Cannon, and Dr. Schaefer around delivering presentations and improving education in an effort to bring radiologists and SLPs together. Dr. Cannon, who's a radiologist and a professor in the abdominal imaging section at University of Alabama at Birmingham, she explains in this article that she and other radiologists at UAB have been collaborating with SLPs on MBSs for decades, which includes things like consulting with the SLPs before uh, the exam to review the patient's clinical history, during the exam to make sure that the study is effective, and after the exam to coordinate their findings and review them with the patient together, which is just amazing. And at the time that this article was written, UAB was actually conducting an average of 140 MBS exams a month. So they have plenty of opportunities to collaborate. Dr. Cannon did acknowledge that there aren't too many groups practicing at this level, but she really urged radiologists and SLPs to reach out and partner with each other. And one of her suggestions as a good first step was to schedule a meet and greet outside of clinical hours to discuss patients and common goals. And I've, you know, I've actually in the past invited myself to sit with some of the radiologists during my lunch break and just get to know them on a personal level. It got to a point where anytime they would see me walking down the hall or anywhere else, they would actually reach out and ask me if I was planning on doing any modified barium swallow studies that they had to prepare for. So another thing I would recommend to SLPs is to not hesitate to call the radiology department and ask to speak with the radiologist you worked with if you have any questions or findings you didn't see at the time of the study, or if you want to confirm that your observations match the radiologist. So part of the reason why this collaboration is so difficult in many other hospitals is because of the low reimbursement rate of MBSs. So MBSs, they're not a high revenue generating procedure for radiologists, so they likely won't be spending a lot of time on them. However, I would like to note that Medicare recently raised their MBS reimbursement rate for radiologists from around $106 to, I think it's $173. So there is oh, wow. a boost. Yeah, it's, very, it's for the 2020 cycle. Finally, another point that I like to bring up when it comes to working with radiologists and other professionals is taking time to actually learn a little bit about their research in their practice. 
we can be really good at blasting all of our research to back up our points. You know, we can sing our own songs until we're blue in the face. But the point here is to harmonize. And we can't harmonize if we don't know what key our colleagues are in. Also, if you really want to make a point around how we should practice with radiologists, they might be more likely to actually listen to their own research because that's their language. So it's just, it can also be impressive if you, if you come in with their arsenal of knowledge that helps to back up your point. Now, radiologists and speech therapists, it's kind of funny. We actually have several things in common. And there are three things that I'd like to kind of just focus on on how similar radiologists and SLPs are. The first thing is that we both have a broad scope of practice. So, Teresa, you would probably consider yourself more of a diagnostic speech pathologist, right? Very much so, yes. And others might see themselves as more interventional. And we have our subspecialties like dysphagia, early intervention, cognitive communication. Parent wouldn't send their two-year-old with a language delay to an adult dysphagia clinic, for example. Radiology can be broken down into specialties like diagnostic, interventional, and radiation oncology, which can then be broken down into subspecialties like abdominal imaging, neuro, body, breast. So for example, you wouldn't send your two-year-old with a head injury to an abdominal imaging specialist. However, radiologists can also spend their time reading images throughout the entire body, not just one specialized area, similar to how SLPs might spend our days seeing both kids and adults and the, an entire spectrum of disorders and impairments. So basically, in a nutshell, both radiologists and SLPs have a pretty wide scope of, uh, of practice here. We don't, they're not narrow fields of study. The second way that we, or the, the second thing I would like to list about the things we have in common is that we both deal with misconceptions by the general public and even our own patients around who we are and what we do. I know a lot of patients that I've had and a lot of radiologists will kind of complain about this is that patients will say things like, oh, you know, the radiologist is the person who takes the pictures, but my doctor is the one who interprets it. And my husband has even talked to me before about, you know, we'll be out and about and he'll tell someone he's a radiologist and a common response might be something like, oh, my son just started school last month to become a radiologist. He should be done and working in a year which wouldn't that be great if it was just one year of training for a physician. We're guessing that's more like an x-ray tech school is my guess, but a lot of people kind of just get the two confused. And a lot of people don't realize that radiologists are physicians. Patients, there'll be patients who'll ask my husband, you know, when will the doctor be here to look at my x-ray and give me the result? Not knowing that he actually is a physician and he will be the one interpreting the images. So, you know, how many of us, speech therapists, have you heard discuss moments around introducing ourselves to patients and the common response is something like, uh, speech therapy, you know, I don't need you, my speech is fine. You know, and there's actually, in regards to radiology, there was a recent survey, even of over 600 patients that showed a majority of them, around 63% of patients preferred receiving their imaging results from the referring provider, not the radiologist which is now leading radiologists to see this as a need to help patients understand who they are in the care delivery process and that they're one of their doctors as well. So I just think it's pretty interesting how they feel similarly to how we feel around patients' lack of understanding and awareness of our roles. 
The third way that we relate to radiologists is that we both have challenges around collaborating with interprofessionals and being heard. You know, we both want to offer our knowledge to other colleagues, but we seem to struggle with it. And an example I have of that from a radiologist perspective is an article I read in Radiology Today, which is a magazine for radiologists, and it offered insight into the lack of communication between radiologists and primary care physicians. One radiologist actually had shared this case that involved a 70-year-old woman who had arrived to the emergency department with a a subdural hematoma and multiple fractures after a fall. She received multiple CT scans, and one of which showed an incidental finding of a 7-millimeter lung nodule. The radiologist had reported the nodule and recommended a follow-up. However, by the time that the woman was treated for her injuries and had a full recovery, she was discharged, and the information, unfortunately, about her lung nodule never made it to a primary care physician. And she ended up returning to the hospital several years later with a diagnosis of stage 4 lung cancer. Now, how often do we as speech therapists feel like our notes and recommendations never make it to outside facilities or to other disciplines, to physicians? And sometimes we do have recommendations that can completely alter the route of care. You know, it can make a huge difference. And I know I make it a point to call the SNFs to speak to speech therapists for this very reason, because we, we have this same issue that radiologists seem to have. So, They've been, radiologists have been studying and continue to study and make strides towards the same goal as SLPs, which is improved interdisciplinary collaboration. Now, I'd like to kind of get into a little bit of my background here, kind of going into why I'm so passionate about this and kind of how I ended up here. Uh, Can I I back you up a second, Lauren? Can I back you up a second? Okay. So two things I I want to mention, you know, you talked about how, you know, you have the patient in front of you and the radiologist comes in quickly and says, okay, who is this patient? Tell me what you know about them. So I'm thinking of the scenario where the hospital SLP gets this patient, this outpatient from a skilled nursing facility and gets no information about that patient. So I think in that case, I'm I'm assuming, I'm guesstimating that all the hospital SLPs are probably screaming right now, like, we get no information. How are we supposed to share the information? But I think to your point, what I, when I worked, um, there was one SNF that I worked in and one specific hospital that I worked in and the hospital SLP would not see the patient if I didn't send over a complete elaborate case history ahead of time. So I wonder, you know, is that, would that help out so many other SLPs too, hospital SLPs? And of course, like you said, you make it a point to call your SNF SLP and sometimes the recommendations are a major change in the plan of care. So I think obviously this episode is really about fostering those interdisciplinary relationships, but I think just having those two key pieces in place would be a huge help to, to help oh, facilitate that. Oh, I think that. that would be a tremendous help. I think you're exactly right. I remember when I would, you know, from, I've gone it on both ends. When I've worked in a SNF and I would be a little frustrated if I didn't get reports from the acute care speech therapist or there's a lack of communication there. And then on the acute care side, you're exactly right, where I've had patients come in from a SNF or somewhere else, but I really had no information whatsoever except for maybe a list of their diagnoses and what their current diet was which is very limiting. So I think that's another great topic there is just improving our communication 
with each other across different facilities. I always loved it when speech therapists would just send with the patient a whole list of their evaluation notes, why they wanted to study, what they were seeing at bedside, all of the information that I would honestly relate to the radiologist. I loved that. So I think you bring up a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, I had to, I would get annoyed because I, it would take me like a while because I would have to fill out, it was like this two, three page thing that I would have to fill out. I'm like, gosh, this is so annoying, but like, I completely understood (laughs) the importance of it. But yeah, yeah. And I, I couldn't imagine the SLP doing the study without it. And, and she also would be wonderful in that she would send back, you know, obviously this is just informal assessment, but she would send back pretty thorough notes about what happened too, just in case, you know, hey, just a heads up, in case the report never gets back to you, in case it gets lost, here's what happened, here's what I saw. So that was really just wonderful to have that information right away because a lot of times these MBSs are like, you know, they shouldn't be, but it's like, okay, the patient can eat, now they can go home, you know? So it's like, I know I'd have like case managers and stuff waiting on me. Like a social worker would be waiting on me. Did you get the results back yet? Can the patient go home? You know, and, and obviously that's not always yeah. the best way, but <laughs> but it's reality. It is. So, and I know yeah. this is extremely rare. I was impressed. There was one speech therapist at a sniff, and she actually would sometimes actually come to the hospital with the patient, observe the study, and she would just give me the background information, answer any questions right then and there, which I thought was Awesome. I mean, I know that's rare, obviously, and I'm saying this, and I know that that's not the norm, but I would just, I felt so spoiled. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I got, I got a little, I got a little annoyed. I had one SLP that every patient I sent, if she was the one that did the study, the patient would come back NPO. They would trial like one or two things and the patient would come back NPO. So I finally just said, could you please, 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 please trial more than like one or two trials? And she wrote me this nasty thing back, like, if, you know, this is, you know, my patient now, if you're, if you want to see how I do the studies, you can come and tell me, blah, blah. And at first I was annoyed, but then I was like, okay, well, maybe I could, like, maybe we need to foster a better relationship. So of course I asked my boss and I was like, okay, well, in order for me to get better studies, because I'm not getting good studies right now, everybody's coming back NPO, like after one or two trials, can I go and see the MBS? And they were like, absolutely not. Like, we, we're not going to pay you for that. That's not productive billable hours, you know. So I was stuck between a rock and a hard place with not getting good results and then, you know, my facility telling me there's no way you could go. So, yeah, those of you that are able to go, that's wonderful. <laughs> I know, exactly. And I know that's rare. But what you described, I mean, unfortunately, that is really common. There's no way everyone's so tied to the productivity standards and, and everything. So I'm not even sure now if she's even still able to do that. I'd be very curious, but it was, it was, it was great. But what you were saying too, just providing even just a list of things to try and what they're noticing and and important medical history, all of that stuff is just so helpful to both the speech therapist and the radiologist. Awesome. All right. So you were about to tell us about your background before I cut you off. Oh yeah. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, great. I love this stuff. So (laughs) background, the reason why I even became passionate about this and kind of made my way into looking into the research and getting into the research a little bit myself was, again, I have had this incredible opportunity to work across different hospitals all over the country throughout my husband's medical training and everything. And this led me to basically pick up different ways to interact with radiologists and rad techs just based off of the culture and the history 
So I've had a lot of practice in that. And just maybe over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, I was at a new hospital and I had been working with several radiologists and I was used to giving them the case history and doing my routine. And I was also, I just had received my certification with MBS IMP. So I was preparing my cup of thin liquid, going into my routine, following the standardized protocol. And there's this radiologist that I had only worked with maybe a handful of times, but he had been there for decades. And I could tell that this study, the MBS, was his least favorite thing to do. It was pretty obvious by his body language. He was not, he was just not having a good time. So the patient was ready. I was ready. The red tech was ready. I grabbed my cup of thin liquid after I explained the case history to the radiologist. And as I pick up the thin liquid, the radiologist stops me and he said, are you sure you want to start with that? Just so you know, as soon as a patient aspirates, I am the study. That's it. So I was kind of taken aback. I, I wasn't fully prepared for that. So, you know, as professionally as I could, I explained, oh, yes, no, this is actually part of a standardized protocol. And as soon as I had said those two words, he just put his hand up in the air to cut me off. And he said, I've been doing this for 30 years. What I do is standard protocol. And again, caught off guard. I was in front of the patient. The red tech was just kind of keeping her eyes down to the floor. No one was really saying anything. So I just, I worked with the radiologist. I, I obliged because I, I didn't want to risk the study ending as soon as a patient aspirates, if she were to aspirate. And then I have an incomplete study on my hands. So I, I worked with the radiologist. I went backwards starting from thick consistency to thin. And I just kind of left feeling a little disappointed in myself because I felt like, you know, ah, I wasn't prepared for that. And I don't know if I handled it in the best way possible. What, what could I have done differently? Which then led me to think, well, okay, well, what can I do in the future? And I came home and, you know, lucky me, I've got this pocket radiologist, I have my husband at home. So I was able to vent to him about everything that had happened. And I told him my plan that I, I really want to create a presentation and just share it with the radiology department. And really, I mean, I had my aha moment. The radiologists, they don't know about MBS INT. They didn't know that I was certified in this protocol. They have no idea. And I, you know, I had to take ownership for that. I should have explained that. So I wanted to come up with this presentation and discuss it with the radiologist. And I'm telling my husband this plan. And I feel like most physicians are like this. I'm not going to generalize and say they all are, but the ones that I know seem to have this personality where it's, you know, you're all in, you go big or go home. Right. And he just kind of looked at me and he was like, if you're, if you're going to do that, then why don't you just present at RSNA? So RSNA is the radiological society of North America. And it is this society of radiologists, medical physicists, and other medical professionals with more than 54,000 members across the globe. RSNA hosts the largest medical imaging forum in the world. So, for example, in 2018, there were 52,985 members that attended the RSNA conference. And 115 countries were represented at this conference. To put that into perspective, ASHA had 18,127 attendees in 2018. So go big or go home, right? Let's just go to the largest radiologic medical form in the world. Now, I want to make a point here that Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, 
She's actually doing this with the Society of Abdominal Radiology, which is SAR. And I absolutely love this. And I wish that I could just go and hear her speak to all of the radiologists at the SAR conventions. Abdominal radiology, which includes GI, that is the primary radiology subspecialty that will perform MBSs. So she's definitely reaching that niche area. Last year at the SAR annual scientific meeting and educational course, Dr. Martin Harris led a workshop with Dr. Cannon and another radiologist titled The Modified Barium Swallow Examination, More Than Just Aspiration. And I know I had mentioned earlier about her work with radiologists and Dr. Cannon and Dr. Schaefer that uh, was presented in a very encouraging light by the American College of Radiology, that ACR article I mentioned earlier, which really prompted education and discussion around how important and standard collaboration between SLPs and radiologists should be. And I have an unbelievable amount of respect for all that Bonnie Martin Harris has accomplished around this critical relationship and the education that she's provided both SLPs and radiologists with, especially in relation to her work with the Society of Abdominal Radiology. RSNA is a little bit of a different perspective because there's still a lot of radiologists who do MBSs, but they're not members of SAR, but are members of RSNA. And radiology residents and fellows are actually, they're all encouraged during their training to join RSNA. And in my husband's case, actually, he was required to join RSNA. All of the residents were required to join it. And he's still a member, so are the other, his prior co-residents. So we actually meet up there every year, kind of as a reunion now, to catch up with everyone. So it's my hope to work with RSNA as a supplement to everything else that's already been done and kind of just really tapping into the radiologists that are still in training since that's their main hub in training. And when I look to see what has been presented at RSNA in regards to video fluoroscopic swallow studies, I do find some interesting presentations that some radiologists have done at prior conferences. And some of these include topics like stroke and dysphagia and looking at the correlation between MRI and CT scans with dysphagia outcomes as visualized on video fluoroscopic swallow studies. There are also several presentations that just compare normal and impaired swallows on MBSs. And a lot of these presentations actually review the anatomy, the normal swallowing versus impaired, uh, contraindications, and what an MBS can and cannot detect. Although I, I disagree with some of it when I was looking through some of these prior presentations, there's one that noted that MBSs cannot detect relationships between pharyngeal and esophageal events. But it had, you know, it had in parentheses that we could do an esophageal sweep as a screener, a screener. But then what's interesting was that the slide right after that discussed that only two types of dysphagia could be observed. So I was assuming they were going to say oral and pharyngeal, since they were saying we can't see anything with the esophagus. But they actually listed oral pharyngeal as one and then esophageal as the next that we could actually assess in the study. So it's just really interesting to see what has been presented and honestly the differences that I was seeing between their beliefs and what a lot of speech therapists are really trying to promote. 
I was excited to see there was one or a lot of presentations actually emphasized that the video fluoroscopic swallow study is not just simply a tool to detect aspiration and that's it. So that was actually really exciting to see that that's being discussed at these conventions. And I mentioned what has been discussed in the past to highlight that there hasn't been anything discussing our current standardized protocols. And there are some differences between some of the information presented and the information that our field uses and implements. So the topic around the relationship between pharyngeal and esophageal events, example, and Julie Huffman has been an excellent force in helping to educate and bring awareness on the relationship between those two parts of the swallow. So, all right, so I took the idea that my husband offered to present at RSNA, and I had to figure out, okay, well, what's, what's the first step? You know, what, what can I do to make this happen? What are my goals? So the first step was to become a member of RSNA. And I initially thought that maybe this would be pretty easy to become a member just by following the instructions for associate non-physician. However, there's only a select list of non-physicians that can even apply. This list includes things like uh, administrators, business managers, architects, assistants, nurses, nurse practitioners, tech, but of course, no speech therapists. So the process for that, I thought, okay, there's really not an option. I'm just going to go ahead and call the membership department of RSNA. I'm going to let them know what my deal is, what I want to do. So I called, I explained that I'm a speech therapist and I'm interested in joining RSNA, which was followed by a pause. And the woman just kind of laughed and asked, why in the world would a speech therapist want to join this? What, what does speech therapy have to do with radiology? And I was ready for that, of course. So The million-dollar question, yes. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'm glad you asked. Yes. So I gave her the information. I even cited some research articles and talked about our role in radiology and, and what we're hoping to promote. And ultimately, I convinced her. So Or she just wanted me to stop talking. I really don't know between the two. But she agreed to send me a PDF form of the application and then she told me, you know, here's what you need to do. Fill out the application and then write up a letter justifying why you think a speech therapist should be a member of RSNA and send it to this person. So I'm going to note here, I'm, I'm not the only one doing this. I have a wonderful speech therapist who's helping me, Maggie Doniker, and she and I collaborated on this. So I wrote up the email. I pulled in research from radiology sources talked about how speech therapists and radiologists are collaborating in research and in the clinical world. And, you know, here's why this is important and send it off to Maggie where she edited it, sent it back. We kind of did this back and forth. And finally I submitted the application and I got that immediate email response, the automated response, you know, thank you for your interest. You'll hear back from us within 24 hours. I was really excited well, 24 hours goes by and I hear nothing, then two days, three days, a week, nothing. So I sent a follow-up email just to make sure that they had received the application, the attachments were there, and if they had any questions, I would be happy to answer them or we could even discuss it over uh, the phone. So I got that automated response again, 24 hours, and another week goes by and I still don't hear anything. So it's been two weeks now where I just poured myself into justifying why speech therapists should even be involved, and I'm not hearing anything. So timing of this was actually pretty perfect. 
Because around this time, my husband and I, we were actually getting ready to go to Chicago. He was going to take his board's examination for radiology. And the RSNA headquarters are, it's, it's right there in Chicago. So I decided to send a second follow-up email and I explained that I'm, you know, hey, I'm, I'm actually about to come to Chicago this weekend. My husband's taking his board exams. If you have any questions or concerns, I would be more than happy to stop by in person at the RSNA headquarters and we can, we can discuss this. I'm really excited. Thank you so much. And in fewer than 24 hours this time, I got the coveted email with the acceptance letter and my membership information and everything that I have access to. So Maggie and I finally got accepted. We are now, at least to our knowledge, I think we're the first two speech therapists that are members of RSNA. And we're trying to see if we can eventually open up access to any speech therapist that wants to join because the information is pretty cool. I mean, anything related to dysphagia, it's, it's small. You know, there's not much. But what I am finding is really interesting. Like I said, when they, there was a presentation where they had correlated MRI, CT scans uh, with strokes and the findings on MBSs. And that was really interesting to see that. So we're still working on that. We really haven't heard anything back, but it's a work in progress. All right. So first step, become a member of RSNA. Check. The next step, we knew that to present an RSNA, we have to take something new to it. And what we've decided is a survey to be able to send out to radiologists and speech therapists to better understand current beliefs and practice between SLPs and radiologists when it comes to MBSs. So we're, we've created this survey, and as a non-PhD, non-clinical doctorate, this has been a really fun learning curve around how to get into survey research. It's definitely not as easy as just coming up with questions, pump it out on SurveyMonkey, and blast it out on social media. You know, I've, I've learned that because these are human subjects and I'm looking into their practice methods and everything, we have to get this IRB approved, IRB being the Institutional Re Review Board. So I've been learning all of this. And I, I honestly, we've had a lot of help with Dr. Kate Cravaugh, Kelly Salmon, and Scott Palasic around this. They've really offered a lot of guidance. And we've asked Scott Palasic actually through ASHA's CLARC program, which stands for Clinicians and Researchers Collaborating. So this has just been a really neat project, and we're really excited. The overall purpose of the survey really is to gain a better and more in-depth understanding of the current trends and practice methodologies between the two professions. And we're looking to collect information on three primary things. The first is just to see what radiologists and SLPs believe to be the purpose of a video fluoroscopic swallow study. Next is the use of standardized protocols. And then finally, we're trying to see what each person perceives to be their role or roles and the role or roles of their interprofessional colleagues during the video fluoroscopic swallow study. And really, I mean, I just wanted to know, is there a lot of discrepancy between the two or are those of us who have experienced it just the squeakiest wheels on social media? And if there is a discrepancy in practice or belief, what are they? Where do they lie? And how large or small is the divide? Do a significant number of radiologists strongly agree with one statement that a significant number of SLPs strongly disagree with? 
uh, currently, at the time of this recording right now, the survey description and components are ready. We're just waiting for that IRB approval. And I'm, I'm thinking, I think that it's actually the ball supposed to get rolling today or tomorrow for the survey to be IRB approved. So I'm really excited about that. But the survey is specifically for SLPs and radiologists who conduct modified barium swallow studies. Hopefully by the time this episode airs, the survey will be approved and accessible to anyone who meets the criteria for the survey. And I would just like to ask any SLP who takes the survey to share the link with their radiologists to take if they can. Our dream goal is to reach 100 radiologists and 100 speech therapists. And you'll be able to access the link by going to my Instagram, actually, at slp.advocate. And then we're going to be finding some other ways to promote the link as well. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Basically anywhere, as many places as possible. (laughs) But I know that the greater challenge here is going to be getting enough radiologists to take this survey. So that's why I really want to encourage any speech therapist who takes this to please give it to the radiologist. And it's why I'm so grateful for this podcast to help get the word out. I'm lucky enough to actually personally know the radiologist who started this large Facebook group for U.S.-based radiologists. And he has agreed to share my survey link on his page as well. So we'll be able to reach his group as 2,500 radiologists. But of course, I don't know how many of those radiologists actually do MBSs. And also Maggie and I, were currently crafting an email to send to the chair of the RSNA board of directors requesting permission to submit this survey to RSNA members. But we were warned that these requests are pretty much rarely, rarely granted. But we're, we're going to try anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our future plan is to incorporate the findings into our discussion and educate radiologists and rad tech on the existence of standardized protocols for video fluoroscopic swallow studies including MBSIMP, MDTT, and possibly Dr. Steele's ASPECT-C method, uh, which is the analysis of swallowing physiology, events, kinematics, and timing that was recently discussed at the ASHA 2019 convention, which I wasn't able to go to, so I I still have a lot to learn about ASPECT-C. But we hope to not only educate radiologists about the existence of these protocols, We really just want to encourage them to collaborate with SLPs around this movement. Just like any other medical professional, speech-language pathologists cannot tailor their dysphagia treatment without knowing what is going inside the body, what's going on inside the body. So in this case, the the oral pharynx and the esophagus. We need to tailor treatment specifically to the underlying physiology, not just the cluster of symptoms that we think we see or hear about. Radiologists, of all people, understand this the most, right? So the importance of this continues to grow, especially because, you know, there's also the growing aging population and the increased incidence of dysphagia. The U.S. Census Bureau uh, in 2018 actually projected that by the year 2035, the 65-plus population will outnumber children for the first time in history. And one study I read from 2015 noted that persons over 65 years of age account for two-thirds of individuals with dysphagia. So we pair this with the growing movement among MedSLPs to use instrumentation, then there should be a growing demand 
for improved radiology SLP collaboration, because I'm sure we're going to be doing more of these instrumental studies. And I see that demand, and I'm apparently just extremely passionate about it. <laughs> so to approach it from this different angle. And one final bit of fun information, actually, speaking of approaching this from another angle, the radiologist I know who created the American Radiologist Facebook group He's also working with me to gauge interest among radiologists in his group around the idea of starting a collaborative radiology SLP Facebook group. Uh, the purpose of this group would be to inform each other, share interesting cases, have professional and informed discussions. You know, and I've written a small educational blurb with a poll for the radiologist to post in his group so we can at least see if there would be any interest. Should there actually be a decent amount of interest when I you know, when I work towards creating this group with some colleagues and hopefully another radiologist as an admin, anyone who's interested in being notified when this group is up, if it does go up, feel free to send me an email through the address listed on my uh, Instagram so that we can notify you. And finally, don't forget to take the survey and share the link with your radiologist maybe over a cup of coffee with them or something. Lauren, this is amazing. That's so exciting. <laughs> this is. Oh, my God. All, all I was thinking during this was my husband's, like, you know, the king of, like, cheesy dad jokes. And, and I said something to him last night, like, I'm so overwhelmed. And he was like, how do you eat an elephant? And I was like, shut up. I don't know. And he was like, one bite at a time. And I was like, oh, my God, stop. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> I feel like this is you. Like I, when I met you last summer, cause Lauren's part of my inner circle leadership group and you stated that you had these big goals and these big visions to now hear that. I mean, you are literally making them come to life. Like you, I'm going to become friends with, I'm going to be an advocate for SLPs and radiologists. I'm going to get them involved and we're going to get on the same page and you know, it's, I, I'm so happy to support you. And I am so, so, so glad that you've done all this. This is amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, it's not, yes. it wasn't just me, you know, it was honestly team effort. Things like with you, the inner circle, Maggie and all of her help, the support, my husband's idea, you know, it is, it's exciting. And there are definitely times where I think how, like, am I the right person to do this? I don't have, I don't have a PhD or a clinical doctorate. How am I going to stand up in front of these radiologists and tell them these things? But it's just, I think it's just that I'm so extremely passionate about it that I kind of just threw that fear to the wind and just figured, you know what, I'm doing it. I've, I've got the time now. I have the passion. I have the resources. This is exciting. And I love seeing the support, too, from other SLPs. So thank you so much. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's totally just the why not me, you know? Mm-hmm. Why not? And and I think that's what you found. You just sent an email to this person, sent an email to that person. Sometimes it lands, sometimes it flops, sometimes it explodes into an incredible new opportunity. So I'm so glad that you, I'm yeah, this is amazing. So I ah, I can't wait to hear all about the survey and everything. So it's, this is so exciting. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. All right. So we will, yes, everything Lauren mentioned will be in the show notes. So feel free to check them out. If there's any updates, I will definitely be sure to keep all of you guys updated. So thank you, Lauren. Do you have any, any final thoughts? No, I, I'm just really excited and I, I can't wait to see how many speech therapists and radiologists actually take this survey. And I'm excited to present it to you guys and yeah. just kind of see what the current trends are right now and see what we can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you. 
So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.